You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business Unusual. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today, I've got the famous Scott Picken, the chairman of the Global Wealth Group, um, all the way from Neisner at the moment. Scott? Yeah, awesome, Rolf. Thanks for having us. I don't know so much about the famous part, but other than that, uh, <laughs> it's accurate. I wasn't going to say infamous because then it sounds a bit dodgy, right? <laughs> so we know what the investment community is like. Exactly. So it's really cool to have you here. I mean, um, one one thing is I love Neisner. The other thing is that property is like a, a a little, you know, pet project of mine. I've got a number of properties, but I mean, um, you, you know, and, and I think the third thing is is you've you've linked that to technology, property and technology, and sort of that blockchain. It's it's quite innovative and and kind of unreal, right? How you can tap these opportunities into fintech. So we've got Tim in the background telling me I've got to do a plug for Africa Tech Week. So, you know, for all those guys looking to go to Africa Tech Week, you know, it's, this is a perfect sort of opportunity of, of how an entrepreneur has gone from property and sort of taken that opportunity and, and used technology to offer a global solution. Was that hard to, to think that globally? Because I know that some of your background is you worked in the UK, you acquired property in South Africa from the UK. But was that often your thinking to think globally very early on? Sure, it's an interesting question, Rolf. And I think um, my parents or my father grew up in Zimbabwe. And so that story, and I mean, I was born in Durban, so I'm a, I'm a South African, but the story of us losing the farms in Zimbabwe and not being able to kind of trust, you know, owning assets in the first world, uh, sorry, in the emerging world, I think it was a story I grew up with. And so, you know, when I studied at in, in South Africa and, and then I went to London, you know, it was it was two things. It was one, travel the world, and B, it was I wanted to be a, a citizen, so a global citizen. I've never earned um, local currency, never, not once. Um, and I've always wanted to own offshore assets. So I think when you say, why did we want to be global? It's, you know, Richard Branson always says, the easiest way to build a business is to solve a problem. And in many ways, I was trying to solve my own problem. Um, and I figured, well, if I've got a problem that I need, there must be others that are, that are like it, you know. And, and so when, when I thought about investing globally, it wasn't so much of like, okay, how can we help everyone anywhere invest in any good pro- property from any amount? It was more, how could I invest in England, Australia, America, Europe, and manage it all in one place with, you know, safely and simply without all the hassle? I mean, if anyone's ever bought a house, which you mentioned you have, you know how much hassle it is. And that's even if it's on your doorstep. You know, when it's overseas, it's a whole different uh, kettle of fish. So um, for me, the second question then came in, okay, well, it's really, really difficult to do. How can I make this easier with technology? And that's been a 20-year journey. And I don't have all the answers yet. You know, the the world's not there yet. Technology is improving really fast, but the regulation's not there yet. And and really, market adoption's not there yet. You know, you talk about blockchain. Most people don't even know what blockchain is. 
And, and so the trust component's not there yet. However, it's a passion and a purpose. And, and I truly believe we're going to see a future where anyone will be able to invest any amount in any project anywhere in the world from, you know, $1 swiping on their mobile phone in the foreseeable future. Uh, whether that's three or 10 years, I can't tell you, but it will happen. Yeah, and, and do you see, I mean, we, you talked about like crowdfunding and those sorts of things as part of sort of underpinning what you do. And I mean, there's a lot of talk about like Bitcoin and those sorts of technologies at the moment. Um, and I think it's sort of misunderstood and almost not properly regulated in a lot of countries. Are you seeing a future where things like Bitcoin would come into acquiring these sort of properties? I think I think Tesla's like selling cars now through Bitcoin. Yeah, so so sure. I could talk for just half an hour on just this, okay? Because there's actually two components to what you just asked. So the first one is regulation in general. And let's use start with crowdfunding. So different countries have adopted crowdfunding in different ways. So England has been the most proactive country in crowdfunding. To put that into perspective, they've got two platforms there, one being Cedars, one being Crowdcube. They are currently merging and they will be bigger than AIM. So you've got the London Stock Exchange and then you've got AIM. It's like NASDAQ. It's their second, you know, their, their second market. They combined will be bigger than AIM. Okay. Now that's what happens when a country is proactive about their regulation. We were talking before we came online about how to create entrepreneurship and how to help and fund entrepreneurs. Well, a simple way is to allow it to happen from a regulatory space. Now, a mutual friend of ours, Kevin Allen and I, actually uh, five years ago, six years ago, set up the African Crowdfunding Association. It was him and I, um, because we wanted to bring regulation not only to South Africa, but to the continent. And I'm really grateful and, and, and chuffed to say that about uh, three months ago, we got the first license in South Africa and in Africa. Okay, now why, why is that important? This has nothing to do with cryptocurrency. This purely has to do with regulation in the fintech space. But why this is really positive is two things. One is that the regulator is moving towards where the industry is going now, which is great because, because it's been very difficult when you're wanting to work with the regulator, but there was no box to put yourself in. And secondly, it allows mass adoption because the way people have been institutionalized is that if it's not regulated, I can't trust it. And it allows this, this trust component. Now, you bring in cryptocurrency, which is the second part of your question. And, you know, this has been, the naysayers have been talking about this for 10 years and it kind of just seems to get bigger and bigger. And, you know, even the, the CEO of JP Morgan, you know, three, four years ago was like, Bitcoin's absolutely useless and now they're buying it, you know, as an example. Yeah, now they're buying it. <laughs> exactly, now they're buying it, you know. So, so it's, it's really interesting how that's changed. It's still an unregulated space. I mean, you still hear, you know, the drugs are, are, are paid for with Bitcoin, you know, which I find hilarious because more drugs are paid for with US dollars around the world than anything else. But, mm. but, but to answer your question in terms of buying Tesla, what is interesting is that we actually allowed people from 2017 to invest in property using Bitcoin uh, through our platform. Mm. And it, it had such a small take up, it was not even worth it. I mean, for the amount of money and the transaction fees and the complexity and everything, it just wasn't worth it. And the problem was for us as well, is that it then relegated us to the crazy camp. Okay, so like if you wanna to go to a traditional bank or you know, we've integrated with Lemonway, which is the biggest uh, payment service provider out of Europe with European regulation backed by the top five banks. They literally said to us, if you associated with cryptocurrency, we can't help you. So for this like 0.001% of our customer base that wanted to use Bitcoin, versus the 99.9% .9 of the majority that wanted to use fiat. It didn't make commercial sense, if that, you know, and, and that's the impasse we, I think we all find ourselves in 
is that we want to kind of go towards where the future is, but but there's some very big players, mainly the banks and the regulations, yeah. that are not allowing it, and you can't play on both sides of the fence. Yeah, I think that's one of the. I see it right. It's one of those big challenges. With are they forcing you out because it doesn't? It competes with them. Um, and the thing about J.P. Morgan and those guys, they they probably got some. They're probably buying Bitcoin, but got some insurance derivative that they're they're backing that if it does, you know, go down or crash, that they're fine. Right? They've got good insurance mechanisms. So, I mean, are you seeing a big adoption for South African properties more from the international sphere? Are you seeing more from South Africans buying property internationally? I mean, there was this thought that why are so many South Africans sending their wealth overseas? But in fact, one of the things I heard, um, and I don't know if it was Clem that said this, but one of the economists, Davi Root maybe, and he said that actually as a proportion of our wealth, our own private wealth, that South Africans have the most of their personal wealth in South Africa, actually. There's not enough diversification in terms of wealth to other areas. So it seems that there's a lot of money leaving the country, but in, in comparison to other countries, it's quite small. Yeah, it's a very good way of putting it. There was another event that I was at with a family office uh, that I highly recommend. And he said, if you take the world's global GDP, South Africa constitutes about 1% of the world's global GDP. And therefore, if you're doing a simple diversification strategy, you should have 1% of your net asset value in South Africa and, and the rest proportionally around the world. I don't believe that's a South African thing. You know, if you had all your money tied up in America, in American residential real estate in 2008, 2009, and in some cities it crashed as much as 40 to 70%. Now to put yeah. that in perspective, you own a house for a million Rand, it dropped to 300,000 Rand <laughs> to put in perspective. And, um, you know, if you had your money all tied up in that, you equally would have, you would have, you know, got a, got a problem. If, if you were all in uh, the UK when, when they had Brexit or whatever. So, so where I think it's, it's so important, the, the, the guy I would recommend most for people to follow in terms of financial information is a guy called Ray Dalio. Um, his book, Principles, is absolutely amazing. Great book. And you can sum it up in literally one sentence. And he says, you know, in these current times, what you have to do is diversify across countries, across currencies, across assets, and even across partners. The challenge most of us have is that, Rolf, if, if you and I want to go out and we want to buy a house in England, a house in South Africa, um, invest in the stock market in America, you know, buy some, I don't know, something else in Australia, now we've got to go and we've got to like have four different holding structures. We've got four different tax regimes. We've got to have four different bank accounts. We're going to have a hell of a lot of cash to do it to start off with, you know, et cetera. It's just been, we could understand the theory, but it was impossible. Yeah. Nowadays it's not. Nowadays with technology, no one has an excuse. You know, you can go on easy equities and you can trade not only the local stock market in South Africa, but you can invest offshore. And literally I think their minimum investments like one rand. You know, you can go on our platform now and you can start from $100 you know, and, and, and invest. And you don't have to worry about the tax, the banking, the structures, whatever. My point being is that you ask the question, are we seeing capital inflows coming into South Africa? And the, and the answer is no. And I moved to London in 1999. I started a company in 2004 called RPS, International Property Solutions. We helped about 2,500 investors invest into South Africa, England, Australia, and America. I could count the number of foreigners on one hand that invested in South Africa in those years. Because when you're overseas, all you hear is all the political challenges and, you know, and, and they, you know, often in those days, they couldn't even tell the difference between us and Zimbabwe and the land grabs and everything in between. So unfortunately, we keep shooting ourselves in the foot 
in terms of our over, overseas sentiment. So the only people who were investing back in South Africa were expats because they could get a better deal in South Africa than they could in London at the time. Mm-hmm. Or more importantly, they could afford a deal in South Africa at the time. They couldn't afford a deal in London at the time. The capital flows the other way for me is common sense. You know, whether you live in whether you live in South Africa or China or India or Brazil or anywhere else in the emerging world, you know, I think this is the best place to live in the world. Personally, I live here by choice. Yeah. I don't have to live here. I have an offshore passport. I could move to the Europe tomorrow morning if I wanted to. I don't. I choose to live here. However, I really think it's important to be a global citizen. And what I mean by that is to own first world assets with a first world income, because that gives you the freedom to make the choices you want in your life. Now, again, you can sit and South Africans tend to be very negative and say, oh, people are taking their money out and whatever. No, not at all. You know, if you're growing your wealth overseas and you're contributing back in society and you're a functioning member of society, you're adding to the value of that country. Now, let me give you an example. In England in the 1800s, England went out and conquered the world. It became the great British empire, (laughs) not because they went inward, because they went outward. Mm. Interesting concept. For sure. It's it's diversifying outward, opening up the the borders. But I mean, um, as an organization, you guys aren't just in those areas. You've actually grown outwards to China. And I said to you earlier, it was interesting to see your, your LinkedIn page and it's actually had, you know, some, some Mandarin there. So obviously that's one of the tricks for the trade if you're going to go to do work in China. But I mean, are there, are there things that lessons that you've learned? Are there challenges that you had to overcome in growing the business and taking it to different locations? You know, you know are, what, are there practical things that you, if you had to do it again, that you would make sure you, those boxes that you ticked? Sure, Rolf. Uh, I could be here for the next three days in lessons. I, I, I won't necessarily give you solutions, but I can tell, definitely tell you mistakes. Um, the biggest one that I've learned recently in another great book is a book called uh, No Rules Rules, and it's the story of Netflix. And what I'm learning over and over and over again is that great companies are built by great cultures. And what I've allowed is, is components that have, that have not um, sufficed to being a great culture. So that, that's really important. And that's, you could be anywhere in the world. You know, Netflix has expanded all over the world now, but they've stuck to their principle of culture and values and everything else. So that, that for me, you know, is a great video by Adriana Huffington um, on how she started Thrive. And again, there's, there's lots of resources, but go and check out those two to start off with. The second one is alignment. You know, being very clear on what the goal is and where you're getting to. You know, there's a big difference between creating a marketplace and empowering you know, people from all over the world to invest and just trying to go after wealthy people and make short-term cash. And, and it's, you know, that's very important from an alignment perspective. So when you get those two things right and you add to that your purpose, which is, you know, what is the big picture? Why are we here? What drives us each and every day? So our, our purpose is that we help solve the wealth gap. Everything that we do must be a step forward in direction to that purpose is that if you get those three things aligned, then when you go find partners, they have to align with those first before you worry about the rest. Okay, so to come back to your question, we learned that seriously the hard way in China. Okay, so we, we went to China in 2015. My first trip to China was in 2003. Um, but, but for business, I was invited to the very first uh, crowdfunding event in China in 2015. I presented there and I was just blown away by the scale and size of China. It just was incredible. So I found a partner on the ground, flew them out to South Africa. We did a bunch of negotiations. We agreed to put a million dollars in to start uh, our Chinese office. 
And the, the, what they promised us was phenomenal. We were going to have 500,000 members within a year. We were going to raise $60 million. It was like, woohoo! It was like Christmas time. And about a year later, we had deployed our million dollars and we had about 23 members. That's not an investor. That's just 23 people on WeChat. And I think we had raised like $20,000. I mean, it was like an absolute night of joke. And, um, and the big lesson we learned was we did what every other Western company did, which was we went into China and told them how to do it in China. And what we realized, and, and again, one of the biggest lessons I ever it learned. Wasn't was, it, Pardon? So it wasn't the investor. Pardon? It wasn't necessarily the investor. You'd done your due diligence. It was yeah, more well, around not being responsive to the environment. Well, it, it's that and, and what I'm about to mention. Mm. While you're paying for someone's salary in a foreign country, you're trying to manage them long distance. It's like impossible. Okay. So in 2017, we changed that round and we said, look, we're going to do our next funding round, but this is going to be different. I'm going to support you to raise capital from your friends and family and, you know, the people you know, and we, and you're going to, you're going to, because I already had ownership in the business, but now the capital is going to come from within, not from overseas. And I tell you, it was such a stark difference. You know, for the first year, they would, every time we'd fly, they would be taken to fancy restaurants and whatever with our money. <laughs> and when we came back, they would take us to like the equivalent of McDonald's. I was like, great. That's where we should have been from the beginning. And from there, we just grew, you know, uh, that, that country's just grown from strength to strength. So not only enabling them to be empowered themselves, but raising local capital so that they had complete local buy-in to, you know, it was their friends that they were spending the capital on now, not, not some idiot overseas. Um, when we got that model right, we then, and again, our, our mutual friend, Kevin, we then rolled that out across multiple countries. We, we then did roadshows around the world and we said, listen, we don't want to go to Australia or America or England or Dubai and go and actually set up a company and employ employees and have to micromanage them long distance and whatever. We want to go and enable co-ownership. So I, I tend to like to say it's like business within a box. You, it's, it's not a franchise because franchise is top-down control. You know, if you own a KFC or McDonald's, they tell you everything literally down to where you buy your chicken. It's not that. It's a strategic partnership. It's a, this is how we do it in this market. It will be different in your market. But if we collaborate in a global ecosystem, we both win. So, I mean, that business model is quite unique. And it's because it's not a franchise and it's not like, it's almost like a partnership in a way, right? And you call it strategic partnership. Yeah, we call it strategic partnership. Exactly. So, I mean, Kevin told me some of the stories about, I think you went and got about $7 million over a, a year's worth of, uh, you know, tr trying to get these investments. And, and I mean, how hard was that to even get that sort of amount of money internationally? What were the sort of challenges that did you have to overcome in, in that scenario, going to the States, going to Australia? They must have been very skeptical. They are skeptical if you turn up not knowing anyone on the ground, but it's all about partnership. So our entire business has been built on partnership. And so when you've got local partners with local connections, then they are the ones that, you know, you're not putting an ad on Facebook and people are just turning up to a hotel. They're being invited by a local partner they already trust. What they like about it is that the local partner on their own is a brand new startup, fairly insignificant with no scale. But by partnering with a global ecosystem, it's a piece of a bigger pie. And so there's a win-win situation. And so it worked, it worked quite effectively in America, in England, in Dubai. Funny enough, it didn't work at all in Australia. Um, 
and uh, we can debate that for as long as you want. Um, the Australians tend, seem to be very conservative. But my point being is that it, it was a model that worked and we just kept recreating it, but, but it was all based on partnership and it was all about local partners. So again, you, I want to go into India. India is the next frontier. We want to be in India. We've already tried. We did our first event in India in 2019 and um, COVID kind of messed everything up for us a little bit. Um, I'm really excited about India. I think there's huge opportunity there. We've got one partner on the ground, and, and again, it's someone who's a global shareholder. So he's got a, you know, he's invested a quarter of a million dollars. So he's got a significant uh, need to help us succeed. But with him on the ground, we then get access to all the right networks, etc. Um, but we haven't figured it out yet. You know, some countries are more complex than others. You know, um, India being one of them. I mean, I saw on your one video, it's like property investor, author, all these things, and then it said networker. And I think at Network, it had like Richard Branson there with you and like Zuckerberg. And, and, and I think that one of the things that's really come become clear for me is that you've almost built this reputation of getting very strong and highly sought after partners who have got credibility on their own. And you've been able to sort of partner up with these guys. What, what would you say is your, is, is, there a, is there a secret to that? Is there a a pattern of things that you do to identify these people? Um, you know, what would you put that down to? Sure, good question. I think I think the simple answer, I mean, I hate the word networking, but the simple answer to it is adding value to people. Okay, so, you know, people tend to phone, you know, you're up Rolf and they're, hey, Rolf, can you do a podcast for me? And it's like, well, why would I want to do that? <laughs> and And the logic is, it's like, no, it's Rolf, how can I add value to you? It's a completely different mindset from what I can get to what I can give. So I'll give you an example of that. When I was trying to build relationships, I don't even know how long ago this was, 15 or odd years ago in South Africa, um, there were the top 12 property people in the country. I mean, you know who they are, Samuel Seif, Bill Rawson, Andrew Golding, you know, all of them. And I found one of the best books that I found in America and I bought 12 copies of it and I posted 12 copies to each one of them personally. And um, 11 of them didn't get back to me. Um, but Bill Rawson did. And, um, and Bill, to this day, I would consider a good friend and a mentor. And, you know, he shares books with me and I share books with him. And, you know, we've done quite a lot of business together. So, you know, for me, it's, it's not what you can get. It's what you can give. And over time, if you can give more than you get, then the relationships kind of build upon each other. I mean, these are strong principles, right? I mean, I think it's one of those things that... Sometimes the simple things are the things that it's so endearing. Um, it's like that that book, you know, you know uh, how to make friends and influence people. It's a, it's a similar sort of thing. Think about how you can help someone add value to their life, and inevitably you'll get value into your life. You've got that quote on your LinkedIn profile from Zig Ziglar. It says almost yeah. something identical. So it's like you're living those values. Yeah, look, I mean, the, I think we built the entire business on those values, which are you can have anything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want. And, um, you know, there's another part to that, which I think is equally as important. And that's about kind of having, you can call it whatever you like, a moonshot, a goal, uh, whatever. So my, you know, my goal, I mean, I love Richard Branson. I literally idolize him. Okay. And, <laughs> and, um, so I'm going to send you his book, Scott. Well, that's the point. I've read all the books and whatever, and, you know, and then I was like, right, I want to meet him. Okay, and I think it was like 2011 or something, and I met him. Um, but let's be frank, I met him at an event with 2,000 other people, and 
You know, mm -hmm. I might have shook his hand for like a millisecond. You know, he's, he's, he definitely didn't know who I was. Yeah. And um, and then it was about 2014, and I saw this video from another guy I, I follow uh, and respect called Roger Hamilton, and he was like, he was on Necker Island. I was like, what? You can actually go to Necker Island? And uh, so anyway, I reverse engineered it. I was like, well, how'd you do that? And he says, no, well, you, there's this there's this group in, of entrepreneurs in America, and it's a bit like a golf club, and you've got to be invited to be part of it, and you've got to be purposeful and whatever. And then once you get invited to that, 25 of them go once a year to Neck Island to spend a week with Rich Branson. I was like, right, I'm making that happen. And um, it was the most incredible, one of the most incredible experiences I ever had. Um, and I did it again in 2016. And the people I met were just phenomenal. I mean, I fundamentally believe you should always put yourself in the room where you're the dumbest, poorest person in the room. And um, and I mean, I was the dumbest, poorest person by a long way, you know, in terms of that. But but just spending a week with Rich Branson, I mean, literally breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like asking him everything you want to know, including the naughty stuff. Like, I don't know if you've seen the picture with the naked girl on his back, who happens to be a South African, by the way. I mean, she's gorgeous. And I was like, but dude, you're married. Like, surely your wife would kill you. And I mean, just the, you know, sometimes there's the fun questions you want to ask, not just how do you make a billion rand or dollars, you know? And, um, but, and, and back to that goals thing, I really feel strongly in life. If you set an intention and you ask, you never know what might happen. Okay, so let me give you another example. I want to interview Ray Dalio. Uh, I, I respect him more than anyone at the moment in the financial space. In the last couple of weeks, I think I've found a way. So I'm basically now dealing with his with his assistant that, that runs all his calendar. Okay, And she's literally come back to me and said, give me a good reason. Like, give me a topic. We love your values. We love your purpose. Give me a good topic to like do a webinar. Now, I want to be clear. I, it hasn't happened. <laughs> okay, But you can see the attentions there. And it probably might, well, it might happen next month. It might happen next year. But I guarantee you in the next 10 years, I will meet or interview Ray Daly. Okay. And that's, that's why I say that with, with a bit of a smile on my face, because it's kind of like the Richard Branson thing. If you'd said to me 10 years before, you're going to spend a week with him on an island, I would have gone, dude, you're dreaming. Um, but the intention was clear. And sometimes the universe kind of conspires to just help you get there. I mean, it really goes to that principle, why are you chasing these people and why is that important? And is it because of that principle of the five people you spend the most time with? Is it about that? Is it, is it, is it that getting that knowledge from other people? That's why reading is so important, do you think? Because you're picking up people's secrets, insights, uh, Tony Robbins, habits. Yeah, Tony Robbins says it best. He says the fastest way to success is to copy a successful person. <laughs> way to wealth is to copy a wealthy person you know so so for me it's you know i've said this already but i try to put myself in the room where i'm the dumbest poorest person because that can only pull you up you know it's interesting when i was i was talking about it on a on a, another recording this morning but when i went to necker island there was only one piece of homework you had to do and that was that you had to bring a life hack along so what is a life hack it's a way that you've hacked life that life's become easier and you can imagine you're sitting with these 25 incredible people and everyone got over the week to share their life hack. And so when you left, you were given like 25 ways to like extremely increase the productivity or whatever of your life from 25 highly successful people. It was like invaluable. I mean, you can't pay enough money for that type of stuff. So, you know, I think to can you share one, huh? can you share one? Yeah. Everything from, the most crazy guy like went on and on and on about meditation. And, you know, for me, yeah. meditation, we've all heard this, but meditation for me was like, you know, whatever, the arty farty guys like do that, you know. And yet what I've noticed, I mean, even Ray Dalio does meditation and has done since 1980. 
I started like after that going, hang on, I need to get into meditation. You know, I'll just give you an example. Another guy did a life book where like he had his whole life planned out and he literally like, you could see how it all worked and he shared it with his team and, and you know, another guy. Um, What's did, the life book? What was the life book? It's like your life. It's like, what do you want in, in your relationship? Okay, so you shared your goals, your aspirations, everything. Exactly. Another guy did a future vision, um, which is where you put yourself in a year ahead and you look backwards as to everything that you've achieved and you're grateful for, even though it's a year ahead. Then he shares it with his team. So he's like, right, team, this is the year we're about to have. <laughs> and then, you know, they work together to make it a reality. Um, another one from a business one that I loved was the guy ran a call center. Now, just by the way, he had my attention because he sold his call center for $800 million yeah. and owned an island next to Richard Branson's island. But anyway, my point being is that he reckoned the number one thing he did to build culture was that he had this, um, I forget what he called it now, but anyway, every three months, um, it was the it was a gift program, a dream. They called it dream um, dreams or something. And everyone in the company could like write in, like it could be literally, I want curtains for my house or I want my kid to go to school or whatever. And every quarter they would um, vote on who should get it. And I mean, these stories were just incredible. But what did that do? I mean, call centers, it's a call center. Like, I mean, people hate their jobs in call centers generally, okay? But they had this amazing, amazing, I'll send you the video if you're interested, Rolf. And yeah, like amazing, amazing. And this is like a little trick. And he was, he said to me, Scott, you know, this thing cost him, you know, sometimes a person wanted a digital camera because they were having a wedding or something, you know, and, um, you know, it cost him sometimes a couple of hundred dollars even. And sometimes it was a kid that's about to die and they sent him to the, you know, NFL or something and it cost a bit more money. But he said the value that that built within his team and the culture and the community and everything else. He said it was invaluable. I got goose pimples telling you the story. So like these are little tricks that you know you're just like wow, like that's brilliant. Like I never thought of that. You know, and we came back and I remember we did that in our company. And the one lady's mother, we were having a load shedding at the time, and she was in an old age home, and they had no power. And you know, we bought a generator for like five thousand rand or something, and now they had power and they could watch TV. You know, and I mean just the the tears and emotion from people is just phenomenal. You know, so. But I mean, it's not just that that you've done giving back. You've done some other cool stuff, like obviously giving back's part of your values as well, right? And and helping other people. It seems to be really close to your purpose. Well, again, I mean, I've already mentioned this, but I fundamentally believe if you know if you you can have anything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want. So, what a lot of people, you know, we we challenge ourselves to empower a billion people. However, what we what we and when I say we are community, but what I think people get wrong is you don't empower a billion people at one time. You empower one person at one time. You add value to one person, and one person adds value to two people, and two become four, and four become eight. So you know, for me, I think a, a passion we both share together is, is entrepreneurship for children. I fundamentally believe in Africa. We can't solve Africa ever unless we solve children being able to become entrepreneurs. And so I, I got the rights to bring in Lemonade Day from, from America and I can't remember what year it was now, 2014 or something. Now, to put in perspective, they're backed by Google for Entrepreneurs. About 300,000 children a year get trained on how to be entrepreneurs. And I was like, well, why can't we do it in Africa? And they were like, you can't. And as you might have realized, I'm not very good with the word can't. So, <laughs> um, and we, we finally got it and we, we did a pilot study here at the Oyster Festival in Neisner. And um, I suppose my shame is that we we got it? We did it two years in a row. We did a pilot study. I mean, the one the one uh, young young man that that did it when he was like fourteen, he won the competition. He flew to Joburg, 
Um, he won the competition again there. Uh, we ended up putting him through crowdfunding through a private school, uh, one of the better schools in the country. He's currently at university. Um, and you know, I tend to joke, he could be the next Elon Musk. What scares me and why I say it's a real shame is I then went to the corporates and I said, to roll this out, I need your support. I need to go to like ShopRite Checkers, who's got distribution. You know, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, running this all over the country. That's not my thing. I want to, you know, and it had to be someone like we went to FNB, we went to ShopRite Checkers. Um, I'm trying to think who else. But anyway, those type of companies that have big distribution and, and geographical distribution, we just couldn't we just couldn't get their attention. And so it kind of petered out. I mean, it's still very small, but it's only like in one town. And if we're going to change a country, you can't change it one town at a time. You have to do it properly, you know. So I, these are the things I struggle with, Rolf, as I'm sure we all do, is yeah. that you want to do more. But, you know, there's a good principle for everyone who's listening to this. You, you have to make enough money to be able to have a decent, decent impact. You know, you can be poor and anyone that says, you know, you don't like money and whatever, but if you've got no money, you can't have any impact, you know. So you've got to balance together the commercial component and the purposeful component together. And I think that's something I've struggled with because I would love to just go out and help the world, but you have to bring the, the profitable part to it. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. I think Warren Buffett said the same thing. Like he had to make his money before he starts giving it away. And right, he's linked up with um, Bill Gates and Melinda. But it was, he realized he had to make that money first before he could uh, share it with the world. But I mean, like entrepreneurship, and we spoke about this briefly, but the, the, the government seems to be fixated on creating jobs, which is, I think, a secondary outcome of creating entrepreneurs. And so like you, um, I travel and I see certain cultures, and we talk about cultures and companies, but there's also cultures in countries as well. Um, and, and how do we drive that culture of entrepreneurship? Um, I, th I think one of the things that intrigued me with you is that you obviously studied at UCT and studied further in the UK. And so, you know, I, I, see, I, I was wondering, where did, where did this entrepreneurial bug sort of come from with you? How did, how did it fall in your world? Was it from your father? Yeah, look, there's, there's, while you were talking there, there's three things I want to mention. Um, so the first one, let's answer that question first. My dad did what everyone was told to do. He went to school, went to university, got a degree, wanted to be a farmer in Zimbabwe, got kicked off the farms, came to South Africa, became a chartered accountant, ended up becoming a financial director of Rainbow Chickens, but yet trusted the financial industry. And at the age of um, 59, actually died broke. And I, you know, unfortunately for me, Statistically, 94% of the people watching this recording will, 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 um, will follow my father, statistically. 5% will be financially independent, which is what the industry calls it, but you're actually financially trapped. And only 1% will be wealthy. And so at a very young age, I went, well, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm not following that formula. It doesn't work. I've seen it happen to my own family. Um, and I tend to say, you know, I saw money destroy my own family. And so I went, no, that, that has to be a better way. And so I loved property from a very young age. I, you know, I played Monopoly since as young as I could. And I started computer programming with a, with a Commodore 64 and logo uh, back, back when I was like six. So I've tried to marry the two together. And um, I think the entrepreneurial bug just came, you know, I did when I went to London and, and off, you know, I, I did a master's full-time on top of a full-time job. But by the age of 25, I realized I'd be the world's worst employee. You know, I just, I hated being told what to do. And I hated doing kind of this, what I'm going to call old school way of doing stuff, including being micromanaged and having to work between eight and six. You know, it was just ridiculous. So that's when I went, I went on my own. And I, you know, my logic was, 
if I'm 25, like I thought about doing an MBA and it was going to cost me about $200,000 in America to do it. I thought, well, I can go on my own. And if I fail, like I don't have any kids, I don't have a wife, I don't, you know, like I can go sleep on my mate's couch. Like there's no risk, you know. And um, whereas once you get into your 30s and 40s and you've got the private schools and the house and the mortgage, like it's much more difficult. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is back to your culture of entrepreneurship is that it's interesting because we pop ourselves in South Africa for having a culture of entrepreneurship. But I actually think, we've got a much bigger culture of entrepreneurship than a country like England does or Australia does. And the reason being is that there's so many handouts and grants in those countries that if I take my top 20 mates, at least half of us are entrepreneurs, literally mm. half. Okay. Yeah. There's no backup system. <laughs> you know, you, you have to go and create something. Whereas in England, it's like, oh, I go to university, I get a job. Like, why would I, why would I take all that risk? It doesn't make any sense. You know, um, and equally, there's there's many sectors of the South African economy where, where there isn't a job. They can't get a job. So they start a sponsor or they clean a car or, you know, whatever. So, you know, I think I think we we, we sometimes downplay the the culture of entrepreneurship. We're very good at at, at, at succeeding through adversity and, and not taking no for an answer, which, you know, I think we've all got used to, to thriving in chaos, which is what an entrepreneur is all about. Um, I think the challenge we've got in South Africa, and Clem Santa says it best, in America, if you're an entrepreneur, they roll out the red carpet. And in South Africa, if you're an entrepreneur, they roll out the red tape. <laughs> he did say that, you're right. And it's crazy, right? Because entrepreneurs are the opposite. Like you give them red tape, but they do find solutions around it. I think that's pretty clear. Well, I think one of the things that, what, so I, I agree with you, like wealth creation, I saw that. And I, and I read it probably in that book, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I, I remember reading it before I had my first son. And I thought to myself, why isn't this sort of knowledge shared more readily with you? I think that was is that big wake up course, like, wow, this is amazing. Like, actually, you must work and create wealth, not just spend your money and buying stuff. Uh, like, just buy this new car or whatever. Like, how, there's a bit of a formula for buying assets that's going to have annuity that's going to create wealth for you. So, I think equally now in my life, I, I see a lot of business people or entrepreneurs. And I think the thinking is, you know, not many of those businesses are actually ever sold. So about 90% of them either close down in some capacity because the entrepreneur themselves has fallen apart. And, and what I see a big opportunity in South Africa is how do you get financing and how do you get investors internationally to grow that business? And that's why I think I was so excited to speak to you is that journey of, Getting outside, taking the Band-Aid off. You've done it in South Africa. There's not too many that, that, you know, I think you're right. We've got some great entrepreneurs, some great business people, and they do really well internationally. And so why aren't more of us taking off that Band-Aid and getting out there yeah. and getting that funding? So, look, the, the, the challenge with the funding is that, you know, the question you're asking is multifaceted because the challenge with the funding is that in America – and, and I'm putting it in perspective, we've raised now somewhere between 18 and 19 million dollars. I don't know exactly what the number is. Okay. Um, so it's a decent amount of capital. In America, they won't talk to you unless you need $10 million. Okay. And most Africans don't need $10 million. In South Africa, the venture capital market here is very small. And they think that 5 million rand is a lot of money. Okay. Now that's like $350,000. I mean, that's nothing. Okay. Um, and then there's kind of the, there is the ecosystem of like the RMIs and there's a few of them, but they tend to value companies on EBITDA. So kind of the fintechs are out the water as well. And so you've got this massive gap 
between, okay, it's okay to be like this tiny little startup with you and your mate in a garage. And now you want to go global and you need like overseas funding. And, and that's the impasse. That, that's, that's, why, that's why they struggle so much um, in terms of the process. So we, we just decided to do it completely differently. And, and um, we've done a combination of, of crowdfunding through Cedars, which is the top uh, platform in, in England, um, as well as you know, angels from, from around the world. But, but really the, the book I would recommend people to read is called Behind the Cloud. It's what gave me the idea. And it's how Mark Benioff started Salesforce in 99. Because in 99, everyone said, you know, CRM's uh, customer relationship management is never going to go in the cloud. And he was like, well, I've got customers that are doing it. So then he went to his customers and said, well, you believe in it. You're using it. Why don't you become shareholders? And the rest is history. You know, it's the I don't know, 10th biggest tech company in the world now, you know. So I think, I think Ralph, the answer is, is, is about creativity and, again, about adding value. And not just kind of sticking to the norm. And if you, you know, you know, go to a couple of VCs and they say no, and you're like, okay, well, this is not going to work. Like, I don't agree with that. You know, it's it's find a different way of doing it. You know, find a different way to to add value. You know, and um, I'd love to I'd love to on a second point. I'd love to just share something with you if you don't mind, which I just find uncanny. You know, I find I find how the universe talks to us sometimes is is absolutely just utterly bizarre. But um, I'm doing a um, so again we we talk a lot uh, today. We've spoken a lot about. You know, how do you get successful? You copy successful people. And I literally have been doing a course for the last two days with one of my, my, my can I just share my screen quickly? I just want to show you something. Yeah, very sure. Oh, there sure. Yeah. So there's a guy called uh, Steve Larson and Russell uh, Brunson. So Russell Brunson's like one of the biggest uh, internet marketers in the world. He makes $50 million a month. <laughs> just to put in perspective. <laughs> so let's say that again, because that, that didn't come through quickly. So, um, so there's two guys, one called Steve Larson and one called Russell Brunson. Can okay, I Russell yeah. Brunson, to put in perspective, makes $50 million a month, okay, through doing internet launches. So I've been uh, doing this course and, and doing this mastermind. And it's so interesting, you just mentioned Rich Dad Poor Dad, because one of the questions we got asked was, what is the one thing that all of your, like your proper customers, your best customers, what have they all read? What do they all understand? And it's like, without fail, it's Rich Dad Poor Dad. It's so interesting because you just mentioned it. So I literally went just yesterday. I know this is a, a, a you know terrible picture and it's not supposed to be a design. That's yeah, good. The investor. Yeah, fine. I literally went like you've got the E's and you've got the S's. And, and you know, and what do people want to know? They want to know how to get from E to S to I. And, and so literally we're going we're gonna to create a product on the four-step wealth formula and how you can do it in 60 minutes. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying you're going to get wealthy in 60 minutes. All I'm saying is you're going to get a plan. And what I, what I, what I realized, if I look at Rich Dad, Poor Dad, is that I read the book as well 20 years ago. And, and the overall takeaway was, you know, run out there in the street and go buy a house, which is probably why you and I bought a bunch I of did. houses. <laughs> but, they're, but they're bloody hard to manage. And, and honestly, they don't actually provide you with a very good return. You know, houses yeah. are, are middle middle class investments. I'm sorry to be crude, but they are. Yeah. You can get far better returns from investing in what the top 1% invest in. And what's interesting using technology is that you don't need $10 million anymore to do it. You can do it with $100 or $1,000 or whatever. So I, I, I tell you why I'm just excited by this is because you talk about rich dad, poor dad. And you know, I think he's changed the world in terms of people's understanding. I'm frustrated that my son, who's nine, is not learning that at school. I mean, that would be far more I'm valuable than, than a language or some rubbish that he doesn't need. Sure. Um, but what's key, though, is education's one thing. 
And people have plenty of knowledge, but they need direction. And what I mean by that is the technology has changed now where, where it can help you. Like you don't need 50 steps and it doesn't take you 10 years. Like there's literally four things you need to do and you can, you know, you can map it out and you can use technology. And I just, what excites me is that 20 years on, I think he wrote that book. I've got no idea in 1995, maybe. So 25 years on, yeah. I just believe that his philosophy is hundred percent correct. But now with technology, everybody has access to it. Not just the few that could go out and buy a house. Yeah, for sure. Now, I, I, I've given that book to each of my kids as well, and I and I made them read it. And there was a junior one before that when they were really young, and they had better pictures and stuff. But it's almost, like, and I agree with you. It's it's like I don't know if it's disappointing or you know why why aren't we sharing those sorts of books with the the youth because they're the things that will give them that freedom and the opportunities to change the way they think. I suppose it's more about the way they think and not being driven into oh. a I don't know how much conspiracy theory you want me to go into, but um, one of his other books, uh, and I forget what it was called now, but it was one of Robert Kiyosaki's other books, was talking about the whole education system and how it was effectively developed during the industrial age. And actually, if you teach people about money and, and investing, then they won't want to be employees and they won't want to pay their taxes. You know, So they, they won't be good little corporate citizens. And, um, and I think it's just really interesting when if you want to be conspiracy theory, if you look at the education system, both at school and at university, you know, why did we not get taught this stuff? I'll give you a good story, a completely different story. It's 2009. I'm in Bondi Beach, Australia. So Sydney, Australia. And I meet two very wealthy German. One was a, was a million, a US dollar millionaire. The other one was a US dollar billionaire. And we're right in the heart of the crash. And I said to them, what are you investing in? And they said, medical buildings. So that's interesting. Why medical buildings? And just before I tell you why medical buildings, and I don't tell you this to boast, but I have a, a, a honors degree cum laude in property. I have a master's degree cum laude in property and technology. Like you would think that with those degrees, you should learn some important stuff about actually investing. Well, they literally said to me, think about it, Scott, no matter what happens in the global economy, you know, people need doctors. I was like, well, that makes sense. Secondly, doctors never leave their premises. Like think back to when you were a child, like your medical premises, I bet you they're still medical premises. And thirdly, doctors are hell of a good at being doctors, but they're not accountants. So they sign good long-term favorable leases. Now you go back to like property 101. Okay. You've got a tenant that's economically resilient that never leaves and pays a good rent. And I was like, why didn't anyone ever teach me that? It's like so simple. Like, like why didn't I learn that at school? And then I was like, okay, cool. Well, how do I participate? And they said, no, it's easy. It costs 5 million Australian dollars. And I was like, ah, there's the catch. <laughs> and, um, and really that, that's been the passion that's driven us building Wealth Migrate because my philosophy is that whether you've got $5 million or $1,000 or even $100, we can bring you together and we can participate in those same deals. And there's two parts to it which are really important because access is only one part of it. You've got to, you've got to get knowledge and self-belief that it's even possible. I tend to say there's actually six steps, but you know, Rolf, we're not taught this. We taught at school not to trust ourselves when it comes to money, to trust financial planners, to trust the banks. And I, unfortunately, conspiracy theory think that there's, it's done for a reason. And on top of that, I've already given you the stats. Statistically, 99% of us are going to fail for the very thing we're all trying to achieve. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, so weird. It has to change, dude. It has to change. Yeah, it's so weird. Like, we, uh, and I think it starts with educating yourself, right? And reading those sorts of books, like you did. I, I read, or I think I read all of Robert's books. In fact, I must have read them several times. 
cash flow quadrant, you name it. Um, so it's so it's about that. It's it's really, I mean, there's these opportunities throughout the rest of the world with property. What are you seeing in the rest of Africa? Are you seeing any appetite for opportunities in technology, fintech in Africa? Are you seeing that as a, a blue horizon or are you seeing it as maybe too risk? So just a quick one on uh, the books. I'll give you a link and if you want to share it below, um, it's what we call an e-wealth pack. And I've actually put all the books uh, down by business, investing, leadership. They're not all the best books. They're just my opinion of the best books, but it just makes it easy for someone if they want to go and check it out. Um, and I'm happy to give that to, to you and your listeners as a gift. Thank you. In terms of Africa, I think, I think there's two parts to that. One is I'm having a very interesting conversation at the moment with one of the um, big funds. So they they are listed out of London and out of Mauritius and on the JSC, so all three places. And they invest in commercial assets outside of South Africa, but in Africa. And I'm actually really interested to, to get involved in it because you've got like the American embassy as your tenant and they're there for like 20 years and you're being paid in US dollars. Like it's a very good investment. <laughs> okay. Um, there's another opportunity where, where this company is looking to put solar across all their different platforms. Uh, you know, they own the buildings. They just want to put them on the roofs. And, um, and again, it's very good returns. So it's interesting because I actually see inward investment coming into that. Obviously, it's quite risky. You've got to be uh, very careful who the partners are and what their track record is, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the yeah. one component which I'm going to call alternative investing into Africa. The other component which you asked is, is fintech in Africa. And I think that's actually exploding. You know, there's a lot of talk that like Lagos in, Ni in Nigeria is bigger than Cape Town and got more entrepreneurship. And I was on a webinar with Roger Hamilton on Tuesday this week. And, you know, he, he, he's got about 3 million um, entrepreneurs around the world and they're currently listing in New York for about $500 million. So I, you know, I tend to take his opinion quite seriously. And um, we were talking about Africa and, you know, he was saying like India is literally exploding at the moment. Like literally all the e-commerce, edtech, fintech, unicorns are coming out of India. And, and for me, it's just common sense. And he was like, after that, it's Africa. And the reason being is that people's necessities here are so much more. Like, so as an example, in America, you know, I could go to university or I could kind of go online and learn a course, but, you know, I could, it's a choice between the two. Mm. In Africa, I go online and learn or I don't go to school. <laughs> it's like that simple, you know. Like, so, so necessity creates it. And, and what happens is you jump through technology hoops. You know, we don't even have telephone lines. So we don't have to worry about dial-up, you know, et cetera. And that's why like in Peso and, and those things are, are like groundbreaking worldwide, you know, the, the Bitcoin of Africa, if you want to call it that. And um, so I think, I think two things happen uh, in Africa and, and in India, but, but it's happening more in Africa going forward, is that necessity is driving it. Yeah. And the second thing, which is the most exciting thing for me, is that there's three and a half billion people that are going to be joining the global economy in the next, who knows, once the satellites come out, but the next couple of years, definitely. And yeah. those people, you know, a huge majority of them are coming from Africa, like something like eight or 900 million of them. Okay, And what do they want? They want access to education. They want access to wealth. They want access to health. You know, they want, they want access to energy like green tech and, 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 you know, so in my opinion, there's tremendous opportunity in Africa, but, but it's for the, you know, it's, it's for the mentally rugged and, and that's, you know, China's no different and neither is India. Um, I heard a beautiful thing. And if you, if you ever consider yourself to be grateful for growing up in, in South Africa, um, I believe that, that we learned how to live with chaos management. And, and if you can live with chaos management, 
you can thrive in the emerging world. If you grew up in Australia and everything just happens in, in sequence, you can't succeed in Africa or India or China because nothing happens in sequence. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to figure it out because basically stuff goes wrong all the time, you know. Our, our bad parts are our advantages. And I mean, just just lastly, you know, I'm envious of you and Nyes that I, I live in Komiki, but I bought a whole lot of flats and property in Cape Town. And with COVID, are you, I mean, things sort of went down and sort of coming up. Are you seeing this sort of buying flats, investing in those sorts of things? Are you seeing that sort of part, part of the property portfolio decreasing? Or do you see when things come back from vaccines that that's going to be an opportunity again? Uh, Ralph, do you want me to tell you the answer you want to hear or do you want me to tell you what I think? <laughs> So I was, on a, I was on a call with John Robbie just yesterday. So Robbie is, you know, Century City and, and the whole the whole bank shoot. I bought into that. Okay. And um, I mean, he's probably the most successful or one of the most successful developers in Cape Town. I think the world's changing dramatically. And what I mean by that is I own 16 properties in South Africa, like you, houses and apartments. And when I looked at my returns on the platform that I was getting, both locally and internationally, where I'd gone up the value chain, I wasn't buying retail, I was buying institutional level returns. I was getting higher level returns with less hassle. And then I had my South African properties, the, the bloody tenant didn't play, and then the management agent would break the property and there was invariably a one month vacancy. And then I had to fix the carpets you know, every bloody year and the geezer burst and whatever, it's just a hassle basically. Like, and I looked at it and I went like, this is ridiculous. Like I'm making more return with less hassle here versus these. And so I sold all of these off. I've sold every single one off except for the house I live in in, in Neisner. Mm -hmm. and, um, and to answer your question, I do believe that residential is going to be the, you know, one of the future segments, um, you know, medical, uh, logistics, and anything that's future-proof will, will, you know, property will still have a very strong uh, part mm -hmm. of, a, of your investment portfolio. But where I think it'll be different is I don't think it'll be Rolf out there owning or making it up five houses or apartments and trying to put a tenant in and managing it. I think it'll be partnering with John Robbie, Signature does their next uh, development at Wex. And rather than selling off 100 or 150 units separately, the whole building is owned by thousands of investors, you know, from every, anywhere. Um, it, it creates far better economies of scale. You don't have 100 different management agents managing 100 different units you have one management agent managing the entire building. And because of those economies of scale, you get far better returns, you negotiate better costs with the bank, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly your menial return actually turns into quite an attractive return, which is why in America, residential is institutional and, and what they call commercial um, investment. It's called multifamily. You don't buy a single unit in America. You buy the whole building of 350 units. I see that coming to South Africa and I see technology enabling that. And by the way, I see that being a massive value add for you. And I see it being a massive value add for John Robbie because he doesn't have to worry about whether he might or might not sell his units over the years. Yeah, there's that investment in Cape Town that we bought into, but you, you sort of, we, there's a clump of us, which is unusual, that bought like five apartments. So it's already starting. Um, and I think the other thing is that Airbnb sort of penalizes you when there's lots of competition. So they sort of encourage the, the lowest price. So what they're doing is they're driving your profits down indirectly. It's good for the, maybe the, the tourist. And so if some one person's controlling it, then at least you know that you, you know, you're not, you, no one's getting cheated. Everybody's sort of winning. It's not because someone's poor that day and they have to drive their price down. Look, um, at the end of the day, 
if you look at technology in any industry, I don't care if it's the taxi industry, the music industry, you take the industry. There's three things that technology has done. It's cut out the middleman, it's cut the costs, and it's dramatically increased the trust, the transparency, and the accessibility. So if we take your example, it's going to cut out all the middlemen. There's no need for all the agents and the you know, all the, all the different people, there's 16 different middlemen, they can all go. Okay, it's just the investor and the developer and boom. Secondly, that cuts out all the costs, okay, dramatically cuts out the costs, even just the cost of financing. If you go to Investec and you fund a building that's worth 100 million rand, you're going to get far better, you know, um, returns or cost of capital than you are if you go and buy one house. Yeah. And you know, thirdly, it's going to dramatically increase that that trust and transparency because you know what you're getting. You've you've got the social proofing and the accessibility. Because now, you know, Rolf, you can maybe go get a mortgage because the bank likes you and you can show an income and whatever. And you've got to put down a 10% deposit and and and. But what about the student with a thousand rand? Yeah. Or a hundred rand. Why can't they participate? Why can't anyone with a smartphone be able to participate? And I think when we do that, we will fundamentally shift the perception of wealth, how to create wealth. And if we do that, we'll change the world. Because what I mean by that is that people won't be relying on other people. They'll realize they can take control for themselves. And also it stops that whole thing of like, I've got to save so much for this big amount. It could be a habit, like part of my salary or this amount goes to that asset class that you know is going to give you the best return. It's not somebody else, some other asset manager managing for you either. The beauty, like, I mean, our platform is just an example, but, you know, you can go to our platform, you fund your wallet, it's your wallet, you're not giving me your money, you're putting it in your wallet, but it's a digital wallet, you're in complete control of it. Then you can fund different investments in South Africa, in America, in England, Australia, in Europe, and you choose, okay, but all your returns come back into your wallet. So, so it's a, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't at the moment end up on your credit card, so you don't go and spend it your next, like, a night out with your mates. So the idea is that you are compounding and reinvesting all those returns. And even though there could be micro returns, there might be a hundred dollar, you know, dividends you're getting paid, but you invest that hundred dollars again, that's how you start to compound uh, growth. And, and that becomes significant. Whereas what most people don't do for the very reason you mentioned is you need a hundred thousand Rand deposit. So you save, save, save for your hundred thousand Rand and then you buy a house and then you, you bloody hurt for a good couple of years because <laughs> you, you generally can't afford the house you're trying to pay for or whatever. And, and then as, as we all know, fees. Our, yeah, exactly. And our wealth kind of standard goes up and we spend more and more money and like that's the end of our investment journey. Whereas if we, you know, just committed to paying a thousand rand a month or something, we would, we would be investing forever. And that would be a fundamental difference to the individual. Wow. It was super awesome speaking to you, Scott. When I come to Nines now, I'm going to be knocking on your door, right? So uh, I, I, I think I'm inspired as well. I remember Kevin telling me that story about um, Richard Branson. So I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, rip into that next time we, we chat as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, look, Rob, it's an honor and a privilege to, to share. You know, I think um, one of my mission statements is to inspire people to achieve the impossible. And hopefully, you know, today, if nothing else, we planted a few seeds of what people can, can do. You know, my overarching thing that I would say to any individual, especially the entrepreneurs, because you said it's, you know, business unusual, is get clear on your purpose and everything else will take care of itself. For sure. And I mean, I, I was meant to invest in your wealth migrate after Kevin told me about it. I'm definitely going to be knocking on that door as well. So I'll, I look forward to look forward to the feedback and I'll send you that um 
at uh, what we call the e-wealth pack so that if people are interested, um, you can share it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Scott. Keep on living. Cheers. Bye then. Lovely.